Thank you, Barb. How many of you um, enjoy worshiping right here in the park? Okay, I want you to picture with me 3,000 years ago what life would be like. That was a very superstitious time, and I mean that in the technical sense. Uh, How would you know if God never spoke? How would you know what's reality and what's not? You decided that you see these trees as beautiful as they are. Those represent God's. In fact, the sun, well, that's got to be one of the most powerful gods right there, the mountains. Well, that's a god. And so we got to figure out how to keep these gods happy. The last thing we want is the gods to be angry at us, any of them. It didn't matter. Most of those regions in the ancient world And in fact, many parts of the world today still have this thinking that who is our patron God? Whoever our patron God is, the one who's going to protect us from the other gods if they get upset. So you can go to Kathmandu, for example. Their patron God is Kali. She's a goddess, actually. She's fierce. Boy, is she fierce. Pictures of her just... But that's what you want. You want the God that's going to watch over us to be fierce so that the other gods can't hurt us. That's the world that we live in. And so we probably better figure out a way to connect with them. Um, I just saw the McDonald's. Cindy, it's great to have you here. For those of you that don't know, a few weeks ago, Cindy fell in Aspen, broke her ankle in 100 places, and had like eight surgeries. <laughs> Here's the problem. She's an orthopedic nurse and has never been hurt. So she doesn't mind lecturing me when I have surgery. But now she's here. It's so good to see you. You're going to do a dance for us on your crutches later? No? Cindy's one of our elders. So glad you're here. So we got to figure out a way to to meet with these gods. We got to figure out a way to keep them placated, to keep them happy. So let's create temples. The temples are kind of like a portal, if you will, where we're going to, um, well, take care of the needs of the gods. What are our needs? Food. So we'll bring food. So if you go to any of the temples in the uh, Eastern world, for example, You'll find regularly the priest taking food and offering it to stone idols, a bull, a calf, an elephant, whatever happens to be. They'll they'll put the food there in front of the gods. Somehow that's keeping the gods happy. But the gods never spoke, so you're never quite sure. You lose a battle, the gods must really be angry at us. Interestingly enough, when you look at the passages in Leviticus, several of you asked me about a couple of the passages, the issue of blood for women, one of the ancient views was that that's how demons came into the world. And so demons, uh, 
it's trans material, the evil could pass quickly. So if any of the women gave birth to a child and there was blood involved, guess what? We're in trouble. We're in trouble. So let's get that woman out of the camp as fast as we can. Because she's probably the reason why we just lost the battle. So that with the staff and Jude said, why is it always the women's fault? It always is in a fallen world. And so these beliefs that they had, by the way, when you read the Leviticus passage on what do you do with an issue of blood, it's just clean up. That's all. None of the superstition, none of that is present in there. And so we got to have these places we're going to call temples where hopefully we pick the right place where we can take care of a God. So when you walk through Nepal or you walk through India, if you, if you know what you're looking for, when you walk down the street, you see temples everywhere. At the base of a tree, you'll find a little tiny stone idol where somebody offers something. That's a little temple. Then you walk, uh, it's really interesting, the, the uh, president of the seminary where I teach, the Bible college in Nepal, right across the street, they went and put a temple there just to remind them that they're not Christian. They have a little Buddhist temple right there. It's about this tall, about that wide. And people go and they make offerings there. Then they have the bigger temples, the regional temples and the, the city temples. And, and these temples are where they would go to placate the gods. They had no concept like we do today that we can enjoy God right here. Everywhere we go. None. None. That was never part of their thinking. Honestly, they kind of liked being away from the gods. If God is over there at that temple, then I'm going to be over here so he or she can't see what I'm doing. Oh, I can rest. But when I get over there, I need to make sure I'm okay. It's very different than the world we live in today. So, when the Bible says that God has created a spiritual temple, where do we go to define it? Do we go to those Buddhist temples? The Hindu temples? The pagan temples in Africa? Do we go look at those? Well, they sure teach us a lot about how people thought about temples, but I would suggest to you that they don't really help us figure out what God is intending. He's using language that the first century world understood very, very clearly, but he's using it in a way that's vastly different than what they were exposed to. We're in a series, A Different Kind of Faith, and I wanted to spend the summer, um, looks like we might spend a little bit longer time if we're going to stay out in the park. Uh, remember, pretty soon you're going to be bringing your snow shovels. <laughs> Where we look at how is Christianity unique? How is it different in its belief system? Most Christians, and I would say many of you, don't realize the precious gift that you have been given, how incredibly unique your belief system is. It's very common in scholarship, if you pick up commentaries and read, to talk about where we overlap. Oh, we all have the peace, love, and happiness texts. We all have those. And if that's all we focus on, guess what? We look an awful lot like Hinduism. We really do. Buddhism. 
It's not until we get to the differences that we begin to see how wonderfully unique Christianity is. And I am absolutely convinced to the point that I would die for this, that it's because we believe in the one true living God. And whenever he steps into our world, either through speaking or action, he does it for the purpose of redemption. Every time. For those of you that have been around me for any length of time at all, I've given you lots of examples. Anytime he steps into our world, he does it for the purpose of redemption. To fix something that's broken in culture. Because he cares about this entire creation more than you do. This is his. He made it. The animals, he made them. The pagans who don't believe, he made them. The trees, they clap their hands. It's amazing. The mountains, he made them all. So whenever he steps into this created world, he does it for purpose and intentionality. That's not found anyplace else in the world. So when he steps in and decides to have them build a tabernacle, a temple, guess what? It's going to be very unique. It's going to be very unique from what they were used to and what they were expecting. We've been spending quite a bit of time starting our sermons in Leviticus. Today I'm going to go back even earlier to Exodus. Now remember, we are about three weeks out of Egypt. That's all. It's only about three weeks later. He had, there were three weeks that they've been in, uh, I mean, since they got to Mount Sinai. So it's about seven or eight weeks since they left Egypt. And so when he got, took them to Mount Sinai, remember he took them to the base of Mount Sinai. So I used uh, Buffalo over there as an example. And at the base of that mountain, he said, all right, if you follow my commands, you'll be my people, my prized possession. You will be mine. I will be your God. And then he terrifies them with lightning, thunder, the mountain shake, earthquakes, smoke everywhere. And then in Exodus 20, in Exodus 19, Exodus 20, the next chapter, the people are over at the base of that mountain. They ran. It's one of the passages makes me just chuckle. They thought, oh, we're going to meet our God. And they go over there and he terrifies them and they go running over there. Moses goes chasing after him. And Moses says, when he gets there, don't be afraid. God did that on purpose to show you who he really is. This is your God. Later on, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're all going to say, has there been any nation where a God demonstrated the power that our God had? Why on earth do you take a piece of wood, on one end you build an idol, and the other side of it you burn it for firewood? Where's the sense in that? That doesn't make any sense. Has any God ever shown the power that our God has shown? No. The answer is no. It was so powerful that they ran from there to there. And Moses had to chase after him. So now, three weeks after that event, he decides to tell them about a tabernacle. They're very familiar with this. They all wanted to have tabernacles. It's in Exodus 25 through 40. It's the largest section in the Mosaic Law, talking about the temple. The tabernacle, which later on became the temple. Okay, the tabernacle was while they were wandering. It's a tent. But when they got to Jerusalem, then they turned that tent into a magnificent building. And so the rules are the same for both. So when I talk about tabernacle, I'm also talking about temple. 
And so when God says, I want you to have a temple, he spends all of those chapters, 25 through 40, telling them about it. That's how important it is. It's the largest section in the Mosaic law. He does that before he gets to Leviticus, where he says, here's all the rules. So today, in the next two Sundays, we're going to spend talking about the temple and the tabernacle, because that's who we are. If we are a spiritual temple, then we need to understand the foundation to this section here. And the question we're going to ask is how does this temple function today? Remember the metaphor we've been using, a different kind of faith. God reaches out with an open hand and he gives us a gift. We've talked about gifts all summer, right? But at the same time, he's not giving us something only. He's inviting us into something. And that's a relationship with the one true God where we get to enjoy what we're actually created for. The love, the joy, everything that you find in the scriptures. So it's a, the open hand is an offering of something and an invitation into something. But the moment he gives it to us, like all blessings and gifts, it's meant to be shared with someone else. That's what makes it a gift. That's what makes it a gift. It's not a gift until you begin to share it. The blessing. And so here we are, three weeks after that covenant, we're at the base of Mount Sinai. They had said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. I love that language. Then in verse 20, or chapter 25, he starts a discussion of this. Moses has gone up onto the mountain again to get this. We learn a great deal about the Lord based on the, the names that he gives this building, this tent, if you will, for example, in Exodus 25, 8. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Okay, boy, we learn right, right off the bat in one verse, we learn a ton about God. Have them make a sanctuary. That's a place of holiness. You see the word sanctuary, uh, sanctuary holiness? They're all the same Hebrew word. This is a place of holiness, because the people didn't quite grasp that God is present with them. It's not the same as God is everywhere and everything. No, we serve a God who is with us. He's omnipresent, which means he exists with us wherever we are. So he says, build a sanctuary, a holy place for me so that I will dwell among them. Okay, right off the bat, we heard something new. The gods never wanted to dwell among us. Why on earth would they want to come down and live in the mess we're in? I mean, that's true today. Talk about a mess. I've told, I've told several of the young people, you guys need to pay attention to this year. This is a history in the making. The beginning of the year, we're talking about impeachment. Pretty soon we have pandemic. And then we have a little bit of panic. And then we have quarantine, right? <coughs> Excuse me. And then we have masks and we have all the things that you're all wondering what in the world is, is going on. The world's tilted off its axis. Well, that's not enough. Then we have all the different protests and the looting going on. Then we have a big election coming up. Man, this is a year to pay attention to. The world feels like it's off its axis for those of us that are older. We're wondering when it's going to get back on it, right? And so here we are. I will dwell among them. This is one of those events that is ground. It's so countercultural. It's like an earthquake. The God wants to be with us? Talk about a gift. Something where your view of God is. If you're terrified of the gods, this isn't a good thing. 
But when Moses says, don't be afraid, that's one of the most oft-repeated commands in the Bible. This is the God that we serve. I want to be with you. So build a place where I can be present with my people. There's one of those gifts right there that we can hand off to people, to others. God cares about everyone and wants to be with him. But then he goes on to the very next verse. Make this tabernacle. So now it was called a sanctuary. Now it's called a tabernacle. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. So not only is it a dwelling place, it's a tent. Make this tabernacle. That's a word for tent. Okay. Now, not only does he want to be with us, but he wants to live with us the way we live life. So Israelites, you're in a tent? I'll be in a tent. You see how powerful this is? This sets the stage for a very important doctrine that we call the hypostatic union. That's just to make sure you get your money's worth. Okay? Here's what that means in simple language. Jesus Christ... Perfect God, perfect humanity, united in one body for eternity. That's what it means. Now think about the ramifications of this. We were not made to be without our bodies. We're not made to be disembodied spirits. That's not us. We're made to exist in the body. That's why Paul argues when we're outside the body, we feel uncomfortable. So when we're absent from the body, when we die, we're present with the Lord until we receive a new body. He takes care of us. But God doesn't dwell in bodies. He is spirit. And he decided to take on a body just like us for eternity. You see, the sacrifice, yeah, appropriately, it was on the cross. But the sacrifice for God was much, 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 much longer. It was the cross where he paid for our sin, but the sacrifice is eternal. Because he took on this body for all time. Forever. Why? It's right here, because he wanted to live with us and be with us. So in New, New Jerusalem, guess who's standing there? Jesus. And we get to go up and touch him and hug him uh, with our masks on, of course. We get to go be with him and listen and ask questions and feel that love personally up close because he wanted to be with us. Okay, there's no other temple in the ancient world that has this language. None. Right here. So he wants to dwell with us and he wants to live in a temple just like us. But then he goes a little bit further in Exodus 28, three chapters later, he says something else. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body. He's talking about the priest and reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting. There's another word for it, a tent of meeting. Verse 43, tent of meeting. Here we're talking about the very presence of God, the imminence. That's a technical term. We can go meet with God whenever we want. Okay? That's what's behind that. We can meet with this God any time that we choose to do that. And then the last one is in Exodus 38. We're learning some things about who God is by the names he gives his own house, if you will. Exodus 38, verse 21. 
These are the amounts of the materials used for the tabernacle. And then he says, calls it the tabernacle of the covenant law. That's the NIV. Some of your translations say the tabernacle of the testimony. This is the repository of the law. The law was a delightful, wonderful thing. Because in all the ancient world, none of the gods ever spoke. You had to figure it out. You look at the ancient divination codes of how they figured out what the gods wanted. Talk about complex. You sacrifice an animal, you take its liver and you chop it in half. And depending on how it falls, they have whole sections devoted to what that must tell the gods. Some of you have heard this story in Madurai, India. They have the big Hindu temple there. They have these two big stone elephants. And you take, of course, you pay for it. Pay for a, a little pat of butter. And you throw it. And if it sticks, then you're guaranteed a year without the gods being angry. If it falls off, the gods going to be angry for a year. Seems to me it'd be important what time of the year you threw that thing. And believe it or not, they have one with a woman with many breasts, and she's like this, a statue, concrete, with a baby coming out. So the husband will throw it, and if it sticks, they're going to have a child. How would you know if God never spoke? So when our God steps into Israel and begins to speak, guess what? That is the best news you could ever hear. No more question no more wondering, no more flipping the dice, no more guessing, no more hoping. Now we know. And so this is the temple, the tabernacle is also the place where we're going to deposit this wonderful law that we're being given so that we never forget. They didn't have books like this. Okay? That's today's world. They didn't have that. So they put it in a special place in this tabernacle. So whenever anybody came to meet with God, they had it right there. They had it right there. At this stage of uh, world history, they're writing it on stone. Wow, imagine carrying your Bible around in stone. <laughs> Everything's written in stone. No, no, it's crazy. So it's right in the middle of this section is that the sin of the golden bull occurred. So Exodus 25 starts the discussion, discussion of the tabernacle. Exodus 32, Moses is up on the mountain getting these tablets, these wonderful words from the Lord, and the people get restless after 30 days. He must be dead now. So we've got to figure out something. So they, they take off all their gold and jewelry. I love the language there. And make a bull, golden bull. Uh, golden bull, by the way, throughout history has always symbolized uh, fortune, sexual prowess. Always. Even in our culture today, I can show you many pictures of how Jews. That's what it symbolizes. We're victorious. We've got the most powerful God. Let's make a God. So when Moses comes back down the mountain, he asks Aaron, what on earth did you do? And he goes, hey, they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire and out came this bull. I love it. Hard to accept responsibility, isn't it? And so you have the sin of the golden bull. And what that tells us they do not know yet that Moses is getting these, these, these commands from God about this tabernacle. They don't know that. Here he is up on the mountain getting these wonderful words about a God who wants to dwell with them, live in a tent like they do, and go with them everywhere they go. They don't know that. And they build this idol. The story as it unfolds, God says to Moses, go down, uh, because your people who you let out of Egypt to sin. He goes, well, well, wait a minute, they're your people. <laughs> it's one of the great passages. And he goes down, broke the Ten Commandments. Remember, he got so angry, he dropped the rock and shattered it. 
And so God says, uh, some of you corrected me last week, and I'm so glad, or two weeks ago, we need more mathematicians here with microphones. So God says, we're going to go up to the promised land. And what I said two weeks ago was the 12 tribes of Israel was, and the temple was in the tabernacle was in the middle. So we had four, 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 and four. And half a dozen of you mathematicians came up and said, that doesn't equal 12. <laughs> You're right. Three, 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 and three. I've been appropriately admonished and corrected. And God says, I'm not going to go up with you. He's teaching them a lesson. He's just getting ready to tell them, I want to be with you everywhere you go. And they sin before he has a chance to tell them. So he says, okay, we're going to teach the lesson a different way. I'm going to take my tent and I'm going to put it way over here. Three, 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 and three. You get to go up, but I'm way over here. You see, he's teaching them a lesson. They had just... He had just given Moses these wonderful rules about wanting to be in the midst with him and go with him, and they sin. So he says, how do I teach him a lesson? That's my thinking. So he moves his tent outside. And the people, every time Moses walked out to the tent of meeting where God was, they all stood at their tents, and they're all looking like that. They know that they have ticked off their God. That's the one thing you weren't supposed to do, ever, because you don't want your God's angry with you. So God is teaching them a lesson just like parents do with toddlers. This is an ancient story of how to help people understand that God really desires to be in their midst. So he moves over there. Then it says in Exodus, we're not going to read the whole story, but it is important. In Exodus 33, God still showed grace because Moses would go out into the tent and they could watch the pillar of cloud, which is a pillar of fire at nighttime, come down and stand right in front of Moses. And it says that God talked to Moses face to face like a friend talks to a friend. That is a picture of what God intended for them. And they're standing there watching in the distance, realizing that they have shot themselves in the foot, so to speak. God's now out there. He's not here. Well, they don't realize that God is omniscient. That hasn't come along yet. You see the, see the story? This is the context in which the tabernacle comes. So then in Exodus 34, he gives them again new tablets and he makes a proclamation, I am Yahweh, I am your God, you will be my people. Then in Exodus 40, when they finished building this tent, the one that's really going to be God's home, not the little tiny tent, but now the real tent, God's glory filled the tabernacle, this tent, so powerfully that they couldn't enter. And they had a very tangible they had a very real sense of who God is. They could see it. They could see this Shekinah glory. It was so powerful to them. God is right there in their midst. Because now he's back in the middle of the nation. This group of people. They could see it. And they recognize grace. It's what it was intended to do. To show them that God, he has a very short, short attention span when it comes to sin. Here's what he says in Exodus.
You're going to love these words. Hold on, I got to find it. Exodus 34. Verse 6, the word, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, says his name twice. He's trying to get their attention. The Lord is compassionate. He is a gracious God. This is after they've sinned. He's on the outside of the tabernacle, the outside of the camp. Now he's coming back in. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Did you hear that? Love and faithfulness. Those words are going to appear in just a moment. With Christ. Maintaining love to thousands, thousands, thousands. The prophets take this language and make it a little bit more explicit. Thousands of generations forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Here's the point. Numbers are very important to the Israelites. He punishes you for sin for three to four generations, but he blesses you for thousands of generations. This is not designed to say that your children are going to have the same sin you are. He's setting up a, a, a picture here for them to see that his, his dealing with sin in your life is only that long compared to his dealing with grace, which is this long. We often hear the part of the sentence where he says, visiting the sins of the parents on the children for three to four generations. So you better be careful, parents. That's what we hear. Right? But we forget the whole second part. But he visits his blessing for thousands upon thousands of generations. In other words, the way he deals with sin is insignificant compared to the way he blesses. That's how he moves back into the camp. Okay. So what happens then? When we move into the New Testament, very beginning of John, we have two very, very, very important verses. Now, I remember what had happened. Um, we skipped the whole part where Israel continued to sin as a nation, and God eventually uh, kicks him out of the land. The glory of the Lord in Ezekiel departs from the temple. That wonderful glory that they had experienced, that Shekinah glory, it's gone now. The temple is just an empty building. It's an empty repository, and God is no longer there. And he's gone for 400 plus years. No glory reappeared. Even the ancient rabbis during this intertestamental time knew the reason why God's glory had departed from the temple was because they had sinned. Even they knew that. Sin had to be forgiven before the glory would come back. And they kept wondering, when's it going to come back? Then when Jesus appears on the scene in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. This is the Greek verb for the word tabernacling or tenting. He tented among us. He did the same thing that the tabernacle was designed to do. He came and lived with us in our world the way we live it. And that's why that the, the doctor of the hypostatic union is so critical because for eternity he's going to walk with us, amongst us. He's going to be laughing at some of you like crazy. I won't tell you who you are. Some of you is going to be scratching his head going, wow, we made that guy? 
No, it's going to be filled with love. But that's the verb. There it is. He, 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 he became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. This is what the tabernacle was all about. God would come live with us and eventually the temple. He goes on, John does. We have seen his glory. You see, the glory returned. Here it is. It just returned in Jesus, the person of Jesus, the glory of the one and only son who, from, who is from the father, full of grace and truth. The same language right out of the Old Testament. Full of grace and truth. Here is the perfect embodiment of the temple. Of what God intended all along. Here's that gift that he's giving us. The true temple has stepped into our world. Jesus. But then he doesn't stop there. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You see, what we discovered was that this is a controlling verse. No one has ever seen God. So when Moses is talking to the Lord face to face, out in the the tent of meeting, who's he talking to? Jesus. Jesus is always the one that reveals the Father. Always. And so that's why he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So for all of eternity, he lives with us in a body. Talk about a long sacrifice. So that we can see who the Father is by looking at him. That was the purpose of the temple. Okay. So now, when I ask you the question... When we are to describe ourselves as a spiritual temple, how do we describe ourselves? Do we look at a Hindu temple? No. We go back to the Old Testament and we look at the tabernacle and then the temple and then we look at Jesus. Now we have a glimpse of one of the purposes of us being the spiritual temple. And the Spirit fills us so the glory returned to the temple. Thank you, Barb, for reading Ephesians 2. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners. No longer. You're no longer strangers, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. And you're being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's a lot of people that have come before us. Hebrews says later on, there's a, a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. We're not alone. We can do this. We can live lives of faith because there's a lot of people that have done it before us. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of what's happening in the world. If it feels like it's off its axis, that's okay. It's God's axis. It's his world. Don't be afraid. We are surrounded by these people that have come long before us. But he goes on from there. In him, that's Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God himself lives. So what's the gift we've been given? God himself comes to live with us. Right now, it's in the form of the Spirit. We together are the temple. What God originally envisioned. The next two Sundays, we're going to talk about part two and three. What were the functions of the temple that describe who we are as a church? What we're supposed to be like. But based on this one section today, 
We are the place where God dwells. Us. Is there any better gift in the world than this? Is there any better gift to offer our friends and neighbors to come meet the Lord? Come meet the Lord because he dwells in us together. Don't ever be afraid to tell people that you're a Christian. Don't ever be afraid. Oh, you don't have to preach at them. I'm not encouraging that. But there's nothing wrong with asking somebody, do you have, to have a do you have a background in faith? Mine happens to be Christian. Do you have a background? Done it many, many times in this county. Most of the time they say, No, I used to, but I don't anymore. Really? What happened? And now I've become curious. Tell me your story. I want to know what happened. And everybody's willing to tell you the story. Don't ever be afraid to tell people you're a Christian. Don't ever be ashamed to tell people that you're a believer in Jesus because you know something they don't. You know the one true living God. They don't know who he is. They only have a stereotype. And you have the privilege of blasting that stereotype apart. That's what it means to be the temple. Father, thank you. Thank you for caring enough about those ancient Israelites in that very superstitious world to give them a very real picture of your dwelling, which we now understand what you desired all along was to live with us and in us, to walk with us, to live life the way we live life, to be our God and for making us your people. Father, we don't desire to keep this secret. We long for our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. We long for them to have the same experience we do of how delightful and wonderful you are. Give us both the courage and the wisdom to know how to say that well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.